Well, hello everyone. I'm your host, Cindy Ketzel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. In this podcast, we team up with experts to bring you the best in HR, talent management, and business strategy. And you all, I know you're getting sick of me asking, but we love hearing from you. If you do have a specific topic or a guest you'd love to hear on this show, please send us an email at podcasts at hci.org. And you all, the amazingness of throwing that email address out there, however, is that we do find wonderful guests. And today's is no exception. I ask for suggestions and ideas and you all deliver on that. And so we've got a wonderful guest for you here today, Amrita Subramanian. She is a former Fortune 500 VP. She's devoted 22 plus years of her career to helping organizations thrive amid crisis. And I read that sentence to you because of our topic that we're going to talk about today. But before we get into it, Amrita, tell us a little bit about how you got where you are. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for your positioning the conversation Well, it's been a story and it's been a very long walk. I grew up in various parts of the world, but I mostly grew up in a convent. And the reason I mention this is it feels like life has come to a full circle with this conversation we are about to have today. Today I teach, I consult with University of Pennsylvania. I teach there and I collaborate closely with the Wharton School, teaching the executives. And I teach post-disruptive growth or post-crisis leadership. But I did not begin as an expert, as none of us do. My beginning is very, very modest and very humble. I grew up in the convent, as I said. And for seven long years, I had a condition called selective mutism. And the reason I mention this is silence is a very big part of crisis. And little did I know that life was preparing me inch by inch to getting to where I am, where the knowledge today is returned back to where it came from, the source of life. So as I grew through life, an incredibly, (laughs) terribly shy person who had massive stammering and stuttering issues as a teenager, God, if you asked my name, it'd probably take an hour to pronounce my name. And all along the way, I met strangers and I relied on the kindness of strangers and somebody always took a chance on me. So my first job was at General Electric and I was a wee little waif of, you know, 20 year old or so, (laughs) you know, when I look back and I look at myself, I find, goodness gracious, what on earth gave me the metal to live another day, to strike up the courage of saying, you know, one more day on this planet. And, you know, 22 years hence from GE to several organizations and several leadership positions to the point where I today teach some of the most brilliant minds on the planet uh, has been a walk of utter surprise, utter trauma, and also understanding that sometimes, you know, we love to turn our face to the sun of pleasures, but there is a quiet teacher that works in the shadows all along us, which is the aspect of pain and loss and what we call the darkness that lives within us. And most of the time we are in denial of it, but there is something profound that the study is revealing about post-traumatic growth. So I'm here as an advocate and also someone whose life has prepared, you know, researchers research their own history. So that's how I'm here. And thank you for the question. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, as we chatted before hopping on to the recording, 
you know, I had shared with you when I read how pain leads to growth. Obviously, that was a huge connector for me. And thank you for sharing a little bit about your history and how it kind of catapulted to where you are today in your journey. I 100% am a firm believer about that statement that I had originally seen, which really caught my attention. With that, Amrita, one of the things that I learned about you is you've also just recently done a study around this. So before we get into our conversation, would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit more about that very topic of pain leading to growth? So let me say that the study has utterly humbled me. And I am delighted that the wisdom of the audience is the place it's returning to because that's where the study found its origin. A couple of my clients and people that I work with would often say that, you know, we are better because of the suffering. So as I dug into this study, I will share three highlights. The first is that the study proves that we all suffer. It's inevitable that we will suffer through pain of any kind of loss that comes to us. And we'll dive more into it later on. But we all suffer, but we don't all grow. So growth is not given. Second, all things that shatter our reality or assumptions of reality often will lead to two things. Either we will become greater versions of ourselves. So from trauma to triumph, there is a leap that we make. Or we will go from trauma to a moment that is frozen in time. So imagine being stuck in a Netflix of our own life where something happened and that same 10 seconds, 7 seconds, 15 seconds, 5 days, that's where we are caught in a loop and we don't move out of it. So we never leave the site of trauma that we have. And this is important for all of us because we're all going through some sort of a trial and tribulation that may not be visible on the surface of being practical and functional leaders and managers and people who occupy the world as mums and dads uh, taking care of the loved ones. And the third thing that the study has proven is that there is a language that exceeds the assumption that we must only convey in English, for instance. There is a richness of language across nine countries and 32 participants between age 29 to 68 who have taught that there is a very, very, very honest call to deeply renew the patterns of our life and to not understand that this negative contagion, since we've just lived it, is the only reality, that there is so much that the pandemic has gifted along with other things, because pandemic was like weather. You know, it occurred along with everything else that was going on in our lives. So the pandemic has given an unforeseen gift to several individuals, and these are not college students. These are not kids we are studying in a controlled environment. These are people like you and me, competent, able, generous, wise, compassionate, scarred by the world, yet taking care of the families and doing the best they can with all the stresses of the heart and the mind. And these are wise people who are teaching that we have grown, but we have also struggled for that growth and we are better for it. You had mentioned you've heard my podcast, so you probably know I jot notes down and I am doing likewise the same. And one of the thoughts that came to my mind as you were speaking through this, we all went through this crisis together. But even to your point, we may have all experienced it, but where we move from it is what has probably varied so much. And especially just in what you're talking about, the trauma to triumph or trauma to being stuck in that loop. Fascinating. 
Yes, it is. And, you know, frankly, Cindy, I do not have enough life left <laughs> to do as much work that needs to be done. I know. It's incredible. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for the opportunity to hear a little bit more about what you discovered on our show. But yeah, I can imagine it takes a lifetime to probably really understand and dive deep. It does. Because, you know, crisis, as you so beautifully said, it's not an unknown factor and something that I'm going to help as a metaphor that we can keep coming back to. We all have an inner GPS. Let's go with that metaphor. And the inner GPS, if you imagined it and drew a triangle in front of your eyes, a three-pointed triangle, and give it three names, the top part of the triangle, call it self, the second part of the triangle on your left or right, call it others, and the third part of the triangle, call it the world. Now, this is our most basic GPS on the inside. This is the core of our worldview. This is how we assume the world works. This is our reality. And it is informed by all of our life experiences from when we are neonatal to when we are at the current present moment. And so what happens is this particular triangle, when we are in favorable circumstances, when everything is going good, the coffee is right, the weather is perfect, your love life is exactly in the balance and you are in Zen. Yes. At that time, you have a deep sense of well-being, meaning and benevolence. In other words, you know, I'm good. The world is good. I am loved and there is fairness. That is the essential place we all live. That's what we call our reality. And then what happens when crisis happens? And Cindy, there was a lovely overlap of words. When you were saying crisis, the word that also came up along with it was crime. And what is a crime if you look at it? It shatters anyone's assumption of reality that I'm safe, that the world is fair, right? So when any kind of shock, which I reckon to say an earthquake, anything that shatters our assumptions of reality, shatters the safety of the GPS, the GPS has to calibrate, right? And when that calibration takes place, we struggle. You know how the car, when you're going through Manhattan or any tall building, so suddenly the GPS is going round and round and round and round. We don't know which way is <laughs> north. That is the shock and denial that we live in. When we say, I can't make sense, I'm numb. I don't know. I just don't know. That statement is perhaps the most important statement and piece of wisdom. We reach a point of not knowing. You see, we live in a world where knowing is celebrated. Experts are celebrated. But we are never taught, you know, it's a terrible thing to waste a good crisis. We're never asked, well, what is this teaching me? So if we go back to the GPS and ask ourselves as a consequence of a loss, now this loss could be something that we can bounce back easily from. For instance, I spilled my coffee while driving to a fantastic client meeting. So the bouncing back is resilience and we have that as a part of coping mechanism. But if I go through, heaven forbid, a minor car accident and it kind of affects me in very deep ways. And if I'm not able to bounce back from it because I have the sense that I'm kind of forever scarred, why me? That's the question everybody asks, why me? I'm a good person. So that's the GPS, you know, asking the question of why do I have to go through this calibration? However, if I go through, whether it's a car accident, whether I have gone through a medical shock to my system, whether I have lost someone I deeply love, whether it's a loss of job, whether it's a divorce, whether it is a deep betrayal of any kind by person, society, system, when this happens and we say that I'm going to ask three questions because of this incident, do I appreciate life more? 
do I appreciate those I love and have loved more? And because of this, do I reorganize my internal priorities to the way that celebrates life rather than poisons life? That is when I have grown. Thank you. A wonderful way to illustrate. And thank you for the analogies. I think that's always useful for people who are experiential in their learning. But it's so interesting to me. I experienced a fair share of chaos and crisis in my life as well. And I personally can resonate with everything that you're saying. And two thoughts came to mind. One, we're talking about ourselves. we're talking about others in our world, and that becomes our compass and our GPS. And when it's right as rain, we're okay. And then crisis, whether that's a shared crisis like the pandemic, like you said, natural disaster, whether it's a personal disaster, whatever this boils down to, people still have to do life. That compass is out of whack, but you still have to show up at work you know, do the best to make the best decisions that you can. Maybe you're in a leadership role, right? Maybe you're an individual contributor. And I'm so mindful of that as human beings, right? And we still have to show up. And internally, we're in turmoil. One of the things my sister used to always say to me, she would say, every time you'd start healing, the scab would flick off again because something else like you had mentioned, why me? Why me? Right. But, and not even from that victim perspective, but when people start to heal, it started to scab over and then there's another crisis and it, you just about think you've got it. <laughs> then that scab comes off again and you're like, oh man, yes. I thought I had it. <laughs> so that was yes. just something. That- yes. I'm glad Cindy. And your sister is very wise, and you're very wise to touch on the heart of all of it. The field of post-traumatic growth does look and focus entirely on the quality of decisions we make for ourselves, for our others, and for people in the world that we live and work with. What your sister also pointed out was beautiful. You see, let's just talk about one fundamental first, and that is trauma. The very word trauma, you know, we just want to turn off because that is something we do not wish to even acknowledge or look at. And something that the pandemic did is it brought trauma inside to our skin and to our health and to our mortality. So we had to confront our fragility, right? It was not a choice. And so when forced to a situation where I look at this word trauma, I would like to invite sort of an investigation, if you will, for all the wise and intelligent and kind people listening to this. Consider this. Trauma in its most popular form represents a deep woundedness and immediately ambulances and deep shock and graphic scenes come in. But that is a lot of the influence of how it is portrayed in the world through different sources. But because it's a popular portrayal does not mean it's the complete truth. Traum, the root word in German, means a dream. It's a dream. That's the root word. So therefore, a trauma can be a positive one. For instance, falling in love feels like a dream, does it not? Finding your mate, the perfect partner, feels like a dream. The perfect career feels like a dream. The perfect opportunity, becoming famous, becoming known, becoming respected for all your life's dreams, we suffer endlessly for dreams. And that we call significant events, that we call ambition, that we call purpose. So along the continuum of positive aspirations where we suffer, what happens when, as you said, 
we are healing from a wound and the scab flicks off, that is the indicator of post-traumatic growth where I say, okay, this has happened. So my pain doesn't vanish. You see, it's not a painkiller. The pain doesn't vanish, but my ability to have tolerance, generous compassion and wisdom for this another yet new crisis that comes along, I find that I am better positioned and I'm more adequate. Somehow I am more adequate to deal with this particular scenario. As you're talking about this, you know, one of the things I'd wanted to ask you about was coping, right? Like you had talked about crisis leading to new ways of coping, and that's kind of what you're alluding to here now. Where do we learn that? How do we learn that? Is it modeling? Is it asking the right questions? Is it a feeling? Like, how do we learn to continue to cope when you're continually bombarded, sometimes with continual trauma? Uh, it's a magnificent question, and I think we could do 50 series podcast on this, <laughs> but I'm going to attempt to respond in two fundamentals, and then, Cindy, you open it up the best way you think would help our audiences. The first fundamental is to understand that as human beings, we are not what the social media or media portrays us to be. We are so much more. We are so much more than our photographs. We are so much more than the memory we have of the best case or the worst case scenario that has happened in our lives. And I think we keep forgetting that. We keep forgetting that we are endlessly, endlessly resourceful. We keep forgetting that we are endlessly generous, kind, and intelligent. And it has very little to do with education. You know, wisdom and education are not correlated. If it was, then the world would be, you know, in a much better place. So I want to highlight that human beings have a natural capacity to constantly exceed the version they were the previous day. That's number one. And our world that we lived in, constantly moving from screen to screen to screen to screen to screen, leaves very little of what I would call attention. You see, we live in an economy of attention where everything is vying for our attentiveness. Now, if I am a perpetually frazzled and distracted person, that I do not know that I have an endless Wikipedia of tremendous stock of knowledge because I'm distracted. So the proportion of distraction is directly linked to how adequate or inadequate I feel. So the first thing is, do I know that I'm really worthy and enough to deal with life? That's the first fundamental. And it goes back to the GPS. So you know now it's linking it all up. And the second bit of the fundamental is, crisis have always been a part of life. Yes. <laughs> you know, don't ever read this book. I know as a professor, nobody ever says that. Never, never, never read this book. It's called The History of Epidemics. It is such a downer. Goodness heavens. I'm like, what have we be humans been doing to ourselves? And one of the things that this very, very horrifying book revealed, and I was crying my nose out of this, that God, we suffer so much, is this. Because we are so distracted, we as a species and civilization have forgotten that we've survived many things over and that wisdom is within our families. Our moms and dads and you know, great aunts and ancestors have known this, but here's what is the second fundamental. Organizations, which are today the institutions of progress, you know, we are all doing, you know, creating purpose in life and creating a machine, if you will, in the society that enables 8 billion of us to have sustainable life forms. One of the things that organizations have to recall is that the people in the system that they've taken, if they have hired well, trained well, treated well, then the social experience that happens, and this is the four levels, at an individual level, 
interpersonal level, so relationally, irrespective of the power dynamics, as a group, so within a department, and system. All four of them have their own levels of what is called permission to grieve. You see, in our organizations, we have no permission to grieve. You're supposed to be cheery and motivated and the rah-rah of things, which is quite fake, if you will. And that is not how life is. That is not how life is. Life has its ups and downs. And something that happens is, say, heaven forbid, I am someone who's starting a family. And I, as a woman, have gone through a very unfortunate events, such as a miscarriage. I've had that. And now I come to work. I can't talk about it. I can't talk to my colleagues about it. And this is called a grief that has no witness. It's disfranchise. But what the organizations are missing is an informed intelligence of giving space to human beings to simply say, today is a tough day for me, and I think I'm going to take it slow. And I mention this for two reasons, and then I'll pause. First, our stress, what we call stress, is not about stress all the time. We presume that, and it's a myth, it's a false assumption, because stress can be used stress, it's a good stress or a bad stress. But if I'm feeling stress, that means there is a pressure. So having pressure in life is not a bad thing. We all have had pressure in life. But here's where it becomes not helpful. When I am not paying attention to my sense of time, my sense of body, my sense of relationship, my sense of emotions, and what I'm good at is denying it, repressing it, numbing it out, because at work... That's how I have to be. Yes, the image. Mm -hmm. So I'm not allowed to be original, even though the war cry of this century is be yourself. But really, the war cry that is getting lived, not advert, but lived, is that you can't be yourself. That is not allowed. So if there is one thing that you know, organizations call me again and again to talk to people as a speaker or as someone who works with them, is the one thing. Am I allowed to have honest conversations about myself, with myself, with my peers, with my colleagues? And this is not performance management. That's a whole different thing. But just you know who I am today because disasters, and this is what you had said, Cindy, right at the beginning, crises are not just a personal experiences. Crises are a set of experience I cannot process immediately. So when I hear about an earthquake in Turkey, when I hear that I have my family who still is experiencing an invasionary war in a part of Europe, when I experience that somebody has been groped along the subway and they said it was okay, all of these affect us. So the world comes with me to the work, and my workplace has to be far more emotionally intelligent to honor the intelligence of the people and their suffering if we want them to figure out a way to grow. You don't have to teach people how to grow. They know it. They will not choose it. Just give them space. It's so interesting. A, where were you in 2008? I could have really Mm -hmm. used you in my pocket because (laughs) that's where I was. I was grieving. Anyways, that's a whole Mm -hmm. other podcast too. But as you started talking about crisis and it's all around us and it's impacting us and you started talking about organizations, that exact thought came to mind. Then how do we help our organizations to give space because to be able to grieve, to be able to work through that crisis, whether it be your great example of an unfortunate miscarriage, whether it be what's going on around us politically, socially, whether it's something that has happened to us personally in our family, you know, we could go on and on and continue to list, list, and list. But 
how do we teach, educate, help our leaders of today to cascade down to other leaders in the organization to give that space, to allow for that authenticity, for that person coming to work. They need to feel that they can go through the life that they're going through and still show up at work. Yes. So I am stuck by how profound this question is and how real and yet how practical this question is. And post-traumatic growth or post-disruptive growth is both a process and an outcome. So let's look at what you said, the environment, and I'm taking a cue and following your instinct on this. So let's take an inspired step. Let's first understand a fundamental. Behavior of a person is the function of the person in an environment. If the environment promotes a positive contagion of the mind, and I'm looking at you know, positive environments, then I will be swept up in a positive spiral. And this is not. And if it's a negative environment, then it's a negative spiral. So now if I have an environment, let's link the two GPSs. So the first GPS was self, other, and the world. Now let's have another triangle. This is the organizational GPS. And it'll always have these three elements. On the top, put culture. On the left, put structure. And on the right, put strategy. So between culture, structure, and strategy, you have the three aspects where an organization can become 35 million times more superior, not just in the capacity of coping, because if you're coping, you're asking for too less, but in its ability to thrive, as is the name of your podcast, the ability to thrive, not in spite of, despite of, but integrating the benefits that the crisis gives as an opportunity for organizations to become greater places where people come in not just to work, but to grow, grow. Yes, to grow in their grow. identities. Yes. yes. And that happens. And that only happens when I look at, is my culture, whether I am at an entry level, a manager, or a CEO, is my entry level, and you spoke of the leaders, and I'm going to establish a continuum, is my culture such that my leadership gets inspired by its followership? And followership is not obedience. Followership is not power. Followership is anyone who is affected by my decision-making, top, middle, and bottom. So those who report to me, those who work on my side, and those who work above me, from the board level, to the consumers, to the regulators, to my first intern. If I understand this, that I as a leader, and anyone is a leader, and everyone is a follower, a leadership is responsible for 20%, as the literature proves to be, Leadership is responsible for 20% of the direction, but 80% of execution is taking place by the followership, which means the system around you. So if your culture promotes space for people to be genuinely all of themselves, not half of themselves, not convenient image of themselves, but original potential, then you will never have to ask a question of, can I cope? You will probably say, what do I do? My organization has such great people. How else might I serve the world and the society? Then that's a better question to solve. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just wow. I mean, at the same exact time, we both said the word growth, and I feel that. And I also liked your positive contagion, and I know you'd used that term earlier on, but that positive contagion really, I think, helps with that bringing your authentic self 
into that space. You know, Cindy, I love when synchronicity and serendipity works because that's a sign that everything is working well. It was last year during the mental health month that I started my study. So yeah, like, you know, it's a full circle of karma. So now I'm standing here speaking with you and, you know, breaking into goose flesh because of two points that you just touched on. The first is, I am looking at how all of this comes together in the concept of mental health. Most organizations have forgotten that we are still fighting the relics of industrial age. Yes, efficiency and AI, and that's the distraction currently. One of the things that the study proves is that work has changed because it is not the paramount identity that the last four generations were taught to be. This generation, our next few generations that are entering the workforce, have a very functional relationship with their work identities. That is coming true for all generations. And, you know, there was this great resignation wave that had happened a while back. And everybody said, ooh, you know, brouhaha. But really what it was, you know, people resign when the economy and life is affirming. So it's a positive sign. And this started in 2019. If you just looked at the data, the wave of resignations in healthcare, in retail, in hospitality, all the three areas that we held up as, oh my God, what a shock in COVID, had already started in 2018 in Australia, in Iran, in other places. But we were not observing it because it was not on the radar. And so COVID accelerated what was already strengthening, which is if my life is subject to a life threatening disease, then am I doing everything with my life that I can? And if my workplace, and that's the second point that you just mentioned, my work is now a mental identity. So if mentally I do not find that space, that environment to be fulfilling, and this is not about, oh, the generation needs more praise or, you know, the cliches of it are completely false. If the level of respect and value amidst the followership is not strong, and how does it become strong? Two reasons that you said. The first one is positive contagion. It's a fact that neuroscience today knows that as social creatures, we have swarm intelligence. This is called limbic resonance. Our brains understand when we are being put on a fast one, so we are being conned into believing this is a good environment, as opposed to, I live it in my body. When I enter the workplace, I'm more relaxed than I was in my car going through the traffic. I can breathe when I walk in the door. Yeah, my shoulders are yes. like hunched up. Yeah. Precisely. So if I have those parameters that when I'm at work, I'm feeling great because I celebrate life. My life walks in with me and it is regarded as a wholeness of myself. I see it. I mean, I feel it and I see it as you're talking about it. Evidence, evidence, yeah. evidence. Yep. Because it's no longer what I put on the media, what I put on my walls. Why? Because it's a psychological identity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I will say this from just my very humble point of view, having been a part of HCI for five years and facilitating classes and meeting people from all over the world and having the great value of meeting with guests over the last couple of years, I feel and I see the wave of change. I'm experiencing through conversation with participants, again, they span within the HR spectrum. I teach an analytics class, so some of them sit outside of that space, and otherwise I may have other roles in my class too. But again, I do feel hopeful, right? Because the priorities that I hear from the participants in my class in organizations 
they are shifting, right? And it's not to say bad or good. It's not even that dichotomous, right? It isn't one or the other. It's just that I hear them talking about the shift and they talk about mental health, right? And they talk about employee resource groups and they talk about what's going on politically and socially and how do we give our employees a space to be able to talk about it, right? So echoing what you're saying, I am seeing movement in that if nothing else, right? If nothing else, that brings me some hope that we'll continue to see it go forward. Cindy, you were so eloquent and poignant in what you said. I appreciate and admire how eloquent the evidence is as it is shifting. Because you see our life, and speaking of statistics, our life is our statistics. That is an empirical reality. It's highly factual. What happens to me in my life, they happened and they probably are the most important thing in my life. So when I come and have the space to share my day or my reality, that is important. My story is data with a soul. And if organizations do not scale in their culture, structure, and strategy to create a deep embedded genetic identity, that this is the place where the fullness of a person is appreciated. And, you know, there are so many generations, and I'm not going to like you said, engage in a dualistic thinking, but there are so many generations which were trained psychologically to never pay attention to the vast range of intelligences that we have. So don't be emotionally intelligent was a way of winning things. You know, being completely tone deaf was a way of winning things. Being colorblind was a way of winning things. But that was a relic of the time that is no longer relevant. So the society has upgraded its collective GPS and there is a shared sense of what is truth and the fact that truth is relative we can forgive the previous generations the error of their ways but we want to also have to acknowledge and that's what we are seeing in the united states and in other parts of the world we are seeing that the trend is people are rejecting what was once the most popular idea because who are we we are constellation of ideas and post-traumatic growth or post-disruptive growth looks at this our crisis makes us teachable and tells us what we believe may not have been a full truth. And then we begin the quest of an emotional and cognitive overhaul where all our intelligences synthesize to make me a better person in my own eyes, make me a better mate, a better parent, a better daughter, son, colleague. And this world, this earth, this planet is no longer a self-centered place of just my pleasure, but I understand that my pain has opened me up to such growth that now I have the generosity to make room for other person's growth and the struggle for it. That's a perfect way to say it. Yep. I love it. Oh, what a wonderful conversation. And I appreciate the stretch in being able to expand our minds and expand our thinking. And maybe for some of our listeners, even take us out of our comfort zone a little bit. We're so grateful that you were able to join us and spend time with us. But before we do wrap up, Amrita, I know you had mentioned to me you've got a a pretty cool website that you wanted to mention before we hopped off. So you want to share a little bit about that? Thank you, Cindy. The website is Grow Beyond Pain. It talks everything about the study. It talks about the focus. And at the bottom of the page, it allows you to get in touch with me directly with your insights, questions, resources that you may want. Because something that I'm striving for, and Cindy said it beautifully, is that we live in the world of endless expansion. And this is not just a hope. 
this is fact. This is what my study is proving, that we have endless capacity of growth. And so if you can get in touch with me, I would like to ensure that people have the resources and people can connect with me. Cindy, thank you so much for this root of conversation, because I think this directly serves people, serves organization. And also there's something about our inner GPS that knows a certain kernel of truth that can liberate the mind from its shackles. And I hope it does that. Yeah, it definitely gives me continued food for thought and and some new language. And I liked that you said, you know, it becomes fact, not just hope. It will become fact. So yes, we are so delighted. And again, thank you so much for taking time with us today. It was a true joy. Thank you. All right, Nine to Thrive listeners. Again, just that reminder of our email podcasts at hci.org. If you've got somebody like Amrita that you would like to suggest to us or any specific topic, we're always open to hear your ideas. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. If you are listening on, for example, Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating. Your rating helps other professionals and talent-minded people discover our program. For Nine to Thrive HR and all of us here at HCI, we appreciate you for tuning in. Make it a great day, everyone.